the United States of America. A long-time presence in Southeast Asia, but the regional environment is changing rapidly. Political realities, climate change, digital issues, China's growing influence. Amid these myriad challenges, how will the U.S. fare? How will Southeast Asian governments respond? Join us for Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, a podcast series by the U.S. program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. Let's begin, shall we? Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Episode 5 of Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia. I'm Kevin an Associate Research Fellow with the U.S. Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS. And today, we're going to look at U.S.-Singapore ties in 2023. Singapore, the tiny island state in Southeast Asia, has a close relationship with the United States. Singapore is Washington's largest trade partner in Southeast Asia, while Washington is the Republic's largest foreign investor. The two also share close security ties with U.S. forces allowed to access Singapore's air and naval bases on a rotational basis since 1990. The two are frequent participants in joint exercises and are also exploring cooperation in emerging areas such as cybersecurity and blockchain payments. The strength of the U.S.-Singapore relationship is beyond doubt. However, a more interesting question concerns the limits and future of this relationship. While Singapore has benefited greatly from the U.S.-led international order, it is also a close partner with China, and its leaders have increasingly warned of the dire implications of disruptive trends such as decoupling. As tensions rise, it is unclear if and how Singapore will adjust its approach to its ties with Washington and Beijing. Now, typically, this is where I introduce the speaker for this episode. This time, however, I'd like you to meet my colleagues from the US program, who will be the discussants for today's topic. In order, we have Adrian Ang, Research Fellow and Coordinator of the U.S. Program, Colin Cole, Senior Fellow, Chang Jinian, Assistant Professor with the Military Studies Program, and Evan Resnick, Senior Associate Fellow. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. Thank you, Kevin. Good to see you guys. Likewise. Great. So let's start off with a basic question. In three words or less, how would you characterize the contemporary U.S.-Singapore relationship? And how has this changed since the end of the Cold War? Uh, we'll start with Adrian, but please feel free to jump in if you have anything to add. Uh, thanks, Kevin. So I would, based on your introduction, the relationship is cooperative and dynamic, right? So the focusing on the dynamic part, I think you have correctly identified that right. the relationship is now sort of subject to change as a result of US-China great power competition. And as you have also right, sort of correctly pointed out, right, sort of our ministers are very cautious and uh, to some extent worried about the externalities of that strategic competition and how it affects Singapore and the relationship with the US, but also right, sort of within the context of events going on in, in Southeast Asia and as well as the Taiwan Strait. 
Well, uh, I'm, I'm a typical academic. I can't really do it in three words, maybe 3,000. But uh, <laughs> I mean, as many as you want, please go ahead. <laughs> but if uh, the three words I would think of, right, is really that uh, Singapore and the US are perhaps uh, open-eyed partners where they recognize the strength of the relationship, but yet at the same time, it's not all-encompassing one, right? Sure. I think that the relationship is pretty strong. So that's only two words. I think that since the end of the Cold War, the big difference in U.S.-Singapore relations that I can see is that government is less concerned and does much less harping to the Singapore government about its human rights record. And we can attribute that to the U.S. preoccupation with a rising China. So when geopolitical threats heat up, the U.S. becomes less concerned about how friendly countries arrange their governments. The relationship is excellent in terms of defense in terms of economic relations, but there are a few problems. One is that sometimes Singapore gets a little nervous that the U.S. is taking an overly hard line in its relationship with China. Sometimes the U.S. is diplomatically inattentive right, by not uh, sending high-level representatives to important regional multilateral meetings. And of course, the decision by the previous administration to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was seen as a big own goal from not only Singapore's perspective, but much of East Asia. What would you say are the main pillars of the contemporary U.S.-Singapore relationship? For example, Singapore is the U.S.'s biggest trading partner in Southeast Asia, and the U.S. is the largest foreign investor in Singapore as well. But what role does this play in the overall relationship, in your view? Maybe I will jump in on this. The rest of my colleagues here have raised very pertinent points about Singapore-U.S. relationship, and I think suffice to say is I remember reading some paper that you know our former colleague was that uh, Si Seng had written about U.S.-Singapore strategic partnership. I think he sort of referred to that as an alliance in anything but name. That it is understandable when outsiders tend to see Singapore-U.S. relationship as equating to an alliance of sort. And there is also definitely some grounds to even argue that in some ways this partnership is even more durable than some of its traditional alliances in Southeast Asia. If you recall back then, when Duterte was in power, the Philippines was more distant from the U.S. By the same time, the U.S. pulled closer to Singapore, especially on security issues. And that was also around the time when the Trump administration was in power and a number of interesting developments took place on both security and economic fronts. So on, Kevin, your question about the economic dimension of that relationship. I think one interesting point that has often been missed is how Singapore plays a role in U.S. effort in trying to push what they call sustainable developmental financing in Southeast Asia and across. In 2019, we signed an MOU with the U.S. on that particular front, which essentially talks about how Singapore and the U.S. work together to help with you know sustainable development financing in third countries, which appears to, according to some observers, you know, a sort of a counter to BRI. But when they refer to that as counter, it seems to put us at odds with BRI, right? We, we are not against BRI, we are an avid participant in BRI. But I think in this case, when we put ourselves in this role, and on the one hand, we try to juggle that economic partnership with the US. And at the same time, we also try to take care of you know, the broader 
national interest with respect to China and you know that Belt Road Initiative partnership. So I think it is more nuanced and generally it appears that our American friends have been complaining that over these years we have been emphasizing too much on the security dimension with them and conveniently forgetting that we do have you know, very close economic partnership with them. So in a nutshell, they don't really like the way we characterize us balancing our relationship with both China and the U.S., on you know very clearly distinct security versus economic front. So in a nutshell, they wanted us to acknowledge that you know, we are good with them on all fronts, not just security. No, but Colin, I would say here, however, right, that the US Singapore relationship is really one of security, but in various dimensions, right? Uh, not just strictly military-centric security, but also political security and economic security. Mm-hmm. When seen in this light, right, then the US investment matters, mm. the US participation in, in political events in this region matters. Mm. And, and naturally, right, the US military presence in this part of the world is, is indispensable. Mm. I, I agree. I think it, it really depends on how you want to define what exactly security partnership is yeah, and, yeah. and even the 2019 MOU on sustainable developmental financing I talked about can be deemed to be a type of economic security of sort even though it may not apply directly to Singapore but at the end it applies to the broader region on the whole but then again can't go without saying that end of the day even some of our American counterparts appear to have seen it quite distinct that you know you know, it's economic is economic you know tell them that oh you know actually we are cooperating on the front of economic security they don't really see that you know that clearly or maybe it is part of the whole narrative that you know we are a bit too drawn towards china on the economic side and they mm-hmm. were trying to convince us to pull closer to them instead so i mean it is not wrong to say that we are under some form of pressure when it comes to both china and the u.s both powers do have a role in trying to untwist Singapore in a certain direction that favor their interests. Although if I could pick up a little bit more at the topic of US-Singapore defense ties, I was wondering, going back to the 1990s, what informed Singapore's initial signing of that MOU regarding the US's use of facilities? Now, clearly I'm not a historian. I think our former colleague Daniel Chua has written a book about some of these things. That is a very useful one. But generally speaking, part of it has to do with keeping the U.S. inside the region, especially after the Philippines' decision not to remove Sweet Bay and the other bases, right? They had mm-hmm. in the Philippines. The offer to allow the U.S. forces to use this Singapore, right? They then was crucial to keep the U.S. within the region. And naturally, it, it follows as well from the, the whole... Cold War dynamic and how our Singapore's early leaders viewed the role of the US, right? In this Cold War, Lee Kuan Yew, for instance, saw the saw that the US role in Vietnam was an indispensable one, okay? And, and therefore, we also offered up our facilities for US sailors to go on leave. And, and all this is a, is a continuation, right, of a pillar perspective. And just to add on to what Jinyun just said, back in the early 1990s, China was still quite weak uh, in military and economic terms compared to what it is today, obviously. And so the dangers of signing that sort of agreement with the United States were much lower uh, to the, in today's more fraught context 
of great power, competition in the region, those sorts of moves elicit a much more hostile and immediate reaction from Beijing. I guess it would be interesting to imagine, right, if China was stronger then, right, whether the same set of decisions would have been reached in that regard. I thought this was a very interesting hypothetical question that brings us back to the 1990s. Because uh, if you recall back in the late 1980s, there were already discussions in the Philippines regarding you know, so-called expelling the Americans from you know, Subic and Clark. And during then, I, I recall when I, I was doing those archival research that during then in the late 1980s, Singapore was already discussing about what's next and these suggestions about offering access to our facilities was being brought up. So if let's imagine during then you know, China was strong or we hypothetically think about a declined Soviet Union and you know the rise of China during that, I would have imagined that you know we might still reach the same decision at the end. At the end of the day, the concern that drives us providing the access still remain the same is to prevent a potential hegemon from filling up that vacuum if the US leaves. So whether it's China or whether it's India, or if, imagine if it's a rising India, then maybe we, we might still reach the same decision as well. So, I mean, I just want to throw it out there so we can have a further debate about this. If I can, if it's okay, if I can just link our, our current discussion to the previous one about whether Singapore is an ally or not, it's not, it's not a formal ally of the United States, but in the current geopolitical environment in the region, it's easier for the United States to really ramp up defense cooperation with formal allies, which it has done with the Philippines, under Obama, now again under Biden, with Japan, so the South Koreans, and I'm thinking about the THAAD missile, anti-missile system. Everyone expects the United States to stand up pretty robustly on behalf of its formal allies, but Singapore is in a different position. It's a strategic partner of the United States. It's an informal partner. Similar countries in the region have to be a little bit more careful in how closely they align themselves militarily with the United States, which is a concern that formal allies have less of. They already have a formal legal stake in a close defense relationship. Right. Well, I, think, I think it's a, a very important point. Uh, after all, the uh, MOU between U.S. exclusive use of the facilities, that so long as they have the necessary diplomatic clearances. I'm not sure if everyone here recalls the first fake resurrection, right? That was proposed by the uh, previous administration, or, or at least a, a certain part of the previous administration that was meant to be based in Singapore. D- didn't quite know what led to that, but that idea clearly didn't get very far. Yeah, I recall that that was in the dying days of the Trump administration, right? And and it was some sort of a trial balloon put up out there, but I really didn't think that was going to go very far, even if there had been a second Trump administration. We we might actually see. (laughs) Yeah, I I jumped into that. I I remember in the dying months of the Trump administration, when most of us were thinking that this first fleet proposal was already dissipating into the thin air. And then there were some reports actually pointing out that even though this might no longer be a political sort of drive behind that. But within the US Navy, there has been still keen interest on that. 
And I think that keen interest was largely motivated by the very fact that they couldn't get any inroads into the Philippines back then, you know, when Duterte was still in power. Now that there is EDCA that is being reinvigorated under the Marcos Jr. administration, I would probably believe that while the U.S. Navy still keeps Singapore first fleet poser as a possible option, but now they will rather put more of their attention into maximizing uh, whatever they can out of that alliance with the Philippines first under the current administration. So it might not be, be dead. It could just be well into you know, the folder and tucked into the archives and then they'll revisit it sometime later. <laughs> Maybe five years later when it's a post-Marcos Jr. administration and if it will be another Duterte-like president, then you know, these may resurface again. So I wouldn't want to hold my breath too much with that. Yeah. Uh, for the uninitiated, though, could you just give us a brief, maybe one-liner about what this whole First Fleet proposal was about? This is a, a proposal that was made during the Trump administration because of the focus on the Indo-Pacific. There was uh, overriding concern that the distribution of naval forces, or the rather the U.S. naval forces across the world, hadn't really taken into account the increasing importance or strategic importance of the Indo-Pacific, specifically with respect to the PLA Navy build-up. So the proposal was being floated as a way to congregate or concentrate U.S. naval power in the region. And with that, the proposal to set up the first fleet headquarters, or they call a new numbered fleet headquarter to run events. And Proposal back then put Singapore as one of the possible locations for the headquarters and some other Southeast Asian countries were also brought into the picture as well. For example, Brunei. The thing is that this was, as I highlighted earlier, in the backdrop of not so cozy military relationship with the Philippines back then. So it appears that the proposal made under the Trump administration was in response to that particular context, and therefore it is a form of insurance. But you know, going forward, I think this is not a project that is 100% killed. They might still push for that uh, along the way. Then perhaps I could ask a little bit more about US-Singapore defense ties. Singapore has agreed to, I believe, host or, uh, a lot of rotational deployments for US hardware, including the P-8 Poseidon, the littoral combat ships, and more recently, the Global Hawk UAVs. Uh, what do you think this says about the state of the relationship? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. It clearly says that the relationship is one in which the two countries are seeing increasingly eye-to-eye military on defense issues. And uh, it's no surprise. I mean, <laughs> this big elephant in the room, right, that's greasing the wheels of U.S. cooperation with lots of countries in the region, most dramatically in the last Several days, the trilateral defense agreement at Camp David between the U.S., Japan, and South Korea. Singapore obviously hasn't moved as far in the in that direction. Again, those are two formal U.S. allies, but it's moving sort of in a more cooperative direction as China's power increases and as it increasingly throws its weight around militarily. Yes, greater cooperation, but perhaps in a nuanced manner as well. Uh, for instance, the uh, littoral combat ships, right? When the agreement was first made, Singapore was keen to emphasize that they were not homeported in Changi Naval Base, but they were simply forward deployed, right? And, and therefore, maintaining the, the idea, right, that Singapore was not a U.S. ally, right, uh, with U.S. bases within the island. 
those things matter, right? In trying to navigate this great power competition between the US and Beijing. At least uh, it, it looks so from my end. I'm not sure about the, from the Beijing end. But, uh, <laughs> Given all this, I think Singapore nonetheless has managed to tread a pretty fine line between maintaining its relationships with both Beijing and Washington. There have been a few hiccups over the years for sure, like when Singapore wasn't invited to the 2017 Belt and Road Summit. But on the whole, I think it's been doing an admirable job. What do you think? If I could jump in on that, um, I, I recall back in 2016, which was exactly one year before everything started to blow up uh, with, with the Terex incident and our Prime Minister wasn't invited to the Bedrock Forum. I remember we were in Beijing as, as part of the uh, exchange visit. And I recall that the Chinese delegation during our visit at the National Defense University who was you know, introduced as a Singapore expert, uh, even though he admitted as much that he didn't live in Singapore before. And <laughs> so uh, I'm not too sure whether he really knows that much about Singapore, his dynamics. He somewhat lamented that, you know, even though China-Singapore economic partnership has been very close and quite deep, but it hasn't been commensurate with the type of security relationship we have. He went on to say that, oh, you know, you have carrot exercise with the U.S. and all that, but, you know, we should have something similar. Maybe we might have thought that we are doing pretty well, and I think we would like to believe that we are doing pretty well, but I think that might be safe to say, you know, more of our own perception that we might be doing well. We have been trying to find other avenues to at least demonstrate to China that we are not ganging up the U.S. against you. We are keen on cooperating with you in substance. But I realized that, and I think we can do a, a quick survey on that, is we, we have been putting a lot more emphasis on broadening and deepening that economic partnership with China. But on the security front, I think it has been moving at snail's pace. It is way more incremental. At, at the same time, we have been widening that asymmetry when it comes to that bilateral security relationship with the US and, and with China, the one with China is clearly lagging way behind, while ours with the US is being stretched even further and, and further ahead. So I don't think the Chinese side were exactly very pleased with that. And I think they will probably still see that as uh, a very clear sign that we still favor the US as a security partner, which I think officially this is appears to be our position anyway. But I don't think it sort of pleases them to see that we are still not putting in as much effort as they desire on the security front. I, I would also add here a couple of things, right? The, the first is the is really that I think sometimes many things get overblown and sensationalized, right? Whether or not our prime minister was invited for the BRI summit, Right, whether or not Singapore yes. was invited for the US democracy uh, meetings and summits and so on and so forth, right? But overall, I it didn't seem to me from the academic perspective that our ties suffered despite these absences, right? Uh, perhaps in terms of the practical day-to-day -day stuff, right? Maybe there was uh, some issues or whatever uh, at the uh, staff level, right? When they, when they interact with each other and, and those things might have seen a certain rise in tensions or 
what have you, right? But overall, I don't think uh, our, our Singapore-US ties suffered because we didn't go for the democracy summit. More did uh, our ties with Beijing suffer because we didn't go for the DRI summit. So I think sometimes these things get overblown and, and perhaps a case in point is really the Eric's incident that Colin referred to uh, initially. What I really want to emphasize here is really that, you know, there was really a glaring lack of evidence that Beijing directed Hong Kong to seize our tax vehicles right in uh, December or late uh, late twenty sixteen right. But despite that, there were still connections made to Singapore's stance on the South China Sea disputes and the uh, arbitral award by permanent court of arbitration right uh, to the Philippines. There were still connections drawn to our uh, absence in the. BRI summit, okay, and, and so on and so forth. I think sometimes, right, it is the nature of the news media, especially to overplay and sensationalize some of these things. The second point I also want to quickly make, drawing from uh, Colin's uh, conclusion, right, is that, you know, naturally, the Singapore-US defense and security partnership is much further ahead of the, of the Singapore-Chinese one, but that's also a function of historical ties, legacies, and, and really the, the development one way, right? Perhaps given time, especially as trust continues to build and the Chinese and Singapore continues to cooperate on the military and security front, then uh, perhaps this one way will get, uh, will get shorter as it Maybe catches up jump in on the US and Singapore. I don't think it's so much a media hype. If you go by the chronology of what happened, I think you know, it's quite clear that even though there is no explicit evidence to show that China was behind the detention of the vehicles, but you know the Chinese official statements coming out from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs during those times you know, continue to link the Terex incident with our position on Taiwan and our position on the South China Sea. So you know, if you are the Chinese Minister of Foreign Affairs, you will just simply end it as saying, oh, you no, know, that is Hong Kong's prerogative as a special autonomous region to do that as a customs protocol. But why would you want to add further by saying that, oh, you know, because Singapore, you need to buck up on your Taiwan stance and all that. I think to let us draw that conclusion becomes more understandable. And of course, the other part about the BRI forum is that when... I think one of our ministers was being asked by Straits Times why we didn't attend. And you know, it wasn't being said explicitly that we are not invited, but simply the line was that, oh, the Chinese side decided the invitation list. So it appears to point to the fact that we are simply just not invited. Mm -hmm. And that has clear links to what happened not long before. So on the other point about the defense security ties, I don't share that optimism as Xiu Jinyan or, you know, whether we can deepen that with the Chinese side. You think about it, you know, on the army side, on the navy side, on the air force side, I think on the army side, we probably can see way more inroads on that. And I think we are still maintaining company level tactical exercise with the PLA army. And of course, we still maintain military medicine training with them as well. On the Navy side, we still maintain you know, the pay sex with that. Jane, you're from Navy, so you know you should know it better than me. So I will want to be labeled much on that. But what I was thinking about is on the Air Force side, I don't know whether we can have anything further for that because the very fact that the RSAF you know, uses you know, exclusively American jet fighters 
will make it very difficult for us to have uh, such high power exercises with the PLA Air Force. This was in fact the same constraint faced by other Air Forces operating American kit. And then you will realize that even Pakistan, for example, even Thailand, they have routinely conducted Air Force combat exercises with China. They had never involved their American-made jet fighters at all because of the restrictions that you don't want, the Americans do not want you to review too much <laughs> to the Chinese side. So I think on that front, maybe or for the Air Force mm-hmm. side, we may face some difficulty. And so we start to wonder, you know, what are those other areas that we can really deepen with China? And maybe that's not, not so much because of the level of trust we have with them, but maybe because from the US side, we are probably being told that, being explicit or whatever, that we should not try to do that with China. Otherwise, it will undermine the trust that we have the Americans with respect to the military technical cooperation. Right. Thanks, Colin. And I think those are very good points. Uh, and at the same time, do you also not think about whether sometimes it, it then becomes the tail wagging the dog? After the media frenzy and, and attention, right, can, can the Chinese MFA respond differently, right? Okay, uh, given all the attention and, and all that, right, and, and from the very beginning, right? So sometimes it may be reactive as opposed to uh, something a bit more insidious, right? And the point about the uh, military equipment is a very good one, right? And, and that's really a function of military purchases uh, and acquisitions over the years, right? And, and that type of legacy brings to If I can jump in just on a more broad level, this conversation is really reflective of the repeated assertion by Singaporean leaders that you know, don't force us to choose one superpower or the other. And it is to some extent a high wire act trying to navigate between two rival great powers without offending one or the other too much by getting closer to its adversary. But I think sometimes maybe we miss the Cold War is sort of our nearest case study for trying to see sort of how much leverage do small states have. And I think the popular impression is that, you know, each superpower during the Cold War had its camp and no one was allowed to leave and that each superpower ruled its camp with an iron fist. I think there was some of that. If you look at the Soviet Union towards much of Eastern Europe, Hungary, Poland, yes. Uh, but then you have lots of cases of states, even that were small countries, very close to a superpower striking a very different position. Look at Yugoslavia after 1948 was able to, to, to establish a very close relationship with the United States. Cuba, I mean, somehow Cuba survived. I mean, at, at, in 1962, it came very close. To not, but you know, Cuba sort of put up its middle finger against the United States in 1960, and it's still a communist country 90 miles off the coast of Florida. <laughs> so I think sometimes we make a mistake maybe in, in getting too worked up and thinking that, you know, oftentimes, yes, small powers, you know, can become roadkill when great powers sometimes stomp all over them. But a lot of times that's not the case. And in a situation where you have two rival great powers, a small country can sometimes play one off against the other to its benefit. Mm. Again, it's a bit of a high wire act. But if you practice a cold blooded sort of shrewd foreign policy, you can actually get the two superpowers to be bidding for your allegiance. We need look no further than the People's Republic of China, which bounced from one superpower to the other during the Cold War to its tremendous advantage. Mm. I really wanted to jump onto what Emma has said correctly. And I think we need to remind our uh, listeners that very often there is this very popular media portrayal of Southeast Asia as essentially a cluster of weak, indecisive, and somewhat helpless or helpless 
Southeast Asian countries, but they forget conveniently that we do have agency. Whether we're talking about ASEAN or not, that is besides the point, but at, at least individual Southeast Asian countries do exercise agency in the quest for their autonomy, in pushing for their national interests. That point has very often been missed out in these very grand debate about, you know, Sino-US rivalry and whether we one should choose the other or not. It was seen very largely in these very clear binary terms when in reality it doesn't really work out the way that it is. I know it's very romantic to think of that, but at the same time, we need to put ourselves down to the ground and be realistic about what we really see on the ground in Southeast Asia. If I can just quickly piggyback on what Colin just said, he's absolutely right. Small states if you think about it, have to be even more rational and pragmatic than great powers, because great powers can throw their weight around and do stupid things and still survive. Look at the United States, two failed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Vietnam, (laughs) and it's still the most powerful country in the world by a huge margin. If you're a country of six million Uh, people like Singapore, if you're a country of six million people like Singapore, other Southeast Asian countries nearby, which are a little bit bigger, but still weak relative to the two big powers in the region, you have to be very careful. And so I think that... uh, I think sometimes we maybe it's worth investigating whether small powers are actually much more pragmatic and rational in husbanding their very limited resources than great powers can be. Small powers have a very important role to play with respect to both Beijing and Washington. They can counsel restraint and warn both great powers of the risks of pursuing an overly provocative policy towards one another. Lee Kuan, you played an in- incredible role in serving sort of as a de facto tutor for Deng Xiaoping as he was trying to navigate China's foreign policy back in the 1980s. I think the smaller powers of the region, and especially Singapore, are extremely well positioned to say to both of these big countries, hey, ease up, guys. If you're too hostile, then we are, uh, we're not going to be a part of this. We're not going to buy into it. But you know, we want you all to play together nicely. And I think it's, it's, it's a danger to underestimate how much influence small countries can have on their big power patrons. That's certainly true. I believe in the past, the late Mr. Lee Kuan Yew has been called an instrumental factor in the development of Singapore's ties with the US, especially because uh, even really renowned diplomats like Henry Kissinger really liked talking to Mr. Lee because of what he called the excellence of his thinking. Which is astounding when you think of a country of just a, a handful of million people uh, affecting the trajectory of a country of several hundred million uh, or billion, or literally close to a billion people at the time. Uh, it, it can happen with extremely shrewd diplomacy. You have to be good at it. And uh, this country is extraordinarily good at it. No, Evan, I was, I was just about to say that when you brought up the case of the U.S., Bismarck did say that God has special providence for fools, <laughs> drunks, and the United States, yes. right? But I completely agree with what you guys have said, is that agency of, of small states, right, has been deprecated. Another case study that is relatively close to our region is to look the Pacific states are doing in terms of playing both sides, getting what they want from both the United States and China. And I think we're, we're seeing, too, with President Biden going to visit Vietnam later this year, apparently to sign a com- comprehensive strategic partnership with Vietnam. Right again, we are seeing states in the region exercising agency in the midst of this great power rivalry. And I, I think Adrian makes an excellent point that maybe I, I wonder this might be worth talking about more broadly, and that is that the great power trajectories seem to be changing. The United States, five, ten years ago, was considered to be sort of the sick great power, the sick hegemon or unipole 
whereas rising China looked to be sort of the inevitable replacement. And oops, look now, China's economic growth has stumbled pretty dramatically, seems to be entering into uh, the same kind of economic stagnancy that hit Japan for 20 years. And the United States is booming. And so a lot of sort of projections that were being made even just a couple of years ago now have to be rethought. Yeah, I thought what Evan has said was so interesting because just uh, not long ago, I was reading this Global Times article. I mean, we can joke all we want about Global Times because it's a a very unique tabloid (laughs) of, of its own kind. But it was interesting because it appears that there is some shift in tone in China recently about the so-called narrative that banks are very primarily on the U.S. economic decline. Apparently, as what Evan, you already pointed out, you know, this hasn't actually happened and the opposite has in fact happened. So the change in narrative has shifted towards arguing that, oh, you know, we, we shouldn't you know, be focusing on U.S. economic decline. Instead, we should focus more on our building our own economic resilience to win this long game with the U.S. So I think, in a way, we might see some interesting shift, not because China has realized that you know, end of day it is um, futile to engage in that. I think they, they are still keen on engaging in this race with the U.S., but I think it's more of a recognition of their own domestic problems and they are trying to recalibrate the way they approach it and consequently it does probably mean some very interesting ramifications for us in Southeast Asia. So th- there's some interesting paradoxes here. Assuming that China goes into a period of economic slump, that doesn't necessarily mean that China is going to be less aggressive. It might become much more aggressive and hostile mm. towards its neighbors. Uh, mm. if, if the CCP can't rely on economic growth to maintain public uh, popular support, mm. it may rely on a more aggressive foreign policy. At the mm. same time, the United States, at least since the Cold War, is always over-inflating threats to its survival. The Soviet Union was a threat. Remember Sputnik? Oh, my God, we're dead. They're going to outpace <laughs> us. And then it was Japan, you know, back when I was in, in college, right? It was, oh, my God, Japan, the rising sun. Japan's going to eat our lunch. And, of course, we know what happened to the Soviet Union. We know what happened to Japan in the 1990s. And now, oh, China's the next big threat. The worry is that American policymakers get too carried away mm. with this threat inflation. And, and act more provocatively and, more, and in a more hostile way than they need to, given that the fundamentals, as Adrian said, the United States is blessed geopolitically. It, it has no great powers in its immediate vicinity and is separated by two big oceans from any. Uh, China doesn't have the same luxury, unfortunately. It's hemmed in by a lot of other big powers. So the worry here is that both of these two titans of East Asia end getting themselves into a crisis that neither one feels it can back, an an unnecessary crisis that neither one feels it can back away from. And that's where small countries have very just reason to be worried. Evan, you raise a very good point. Just watching the recent GOP presidential debate, right? Again, one of the very few things all candidates can agree on is to be tough on China. Yeah. And then as, as we see, you know, sort of China weaken economically and, and having to deal with right pressing domestic problems, as you quite rightly pointed out, one worry is that US attitude will be, now this is the best time to get at China. If, if China is, is down, this is the best time, right, to keep China down. And, and that, as, as you quite rightly point out, right, might lead to problems that both sides, right, will find themselves almost impossible to extricate themselves from. Yeah. And if you look at Congress, what's one thing that the Republicans and Democrats can agree on in Congress? Oh, anti-China legislation. That's Mm -hmm. not unusual, right? Foreign threats help to bring 
you know, polarized political parties closer together. You know, it's, it's nice to bring the country together politically, but if you're doing it through massive threat inflation, you end up potentially entrapping the country and snaring the country into war. That's unnecessary. Again, there's been some decoupling, a little bit of decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese economies, but not that much. There's still each other's what now second largest trading partner. So it's still a very important bilateral economic relationship that either country sacrifices to its enormous at enormous cost. If I may, then to kind of cap off our discussion so far, what do you think are the prospects for U.S. Singapore ties going into 2024, especially since it's going to be a presidential election next year? So I think, barring any untoward event in the region, the ties will remain pretty much as they are. And the U.S. will find itself, because as, as you point out, Kevin, moving into a presidential election cycle, right, is going to be looking primarily inwards. Any closing thoughts then? I was actually just thinking, right, you know, what might a second Trump administration look like? I mean, who in their right minds would want to serve <laughs> in a second Trump administration if one actually comes about? The first time around, you have people like Mathis and all who go, okay, it's a matter of duty. But I mean, right now, right, knowing everything <laughs> that they have done, they have, you know, over the last seven to eight years to knowingly want to almost serve chaos, you then have really have to worry about who wants to serve in a second I'm Trump be a administration. I'm going a gadfly on that question because uh, I remember living in New York on 9-11 and thinking in the immediate aftermath of that attack, thank goodness that this administration has, a, has some serious adults in the room. Donald Rumsfeld, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice. These are serious people who know what they're doing. Maybe Bush didn't know that much, but he, his senior advisors, Paul Wolfowitz, had decades of foreign policy experience. Look at the horrible policy that emerged from those geniuses. And then I compare it to the Trump administration, which was total chaos <laughs> for four years, and I wouldn't want to ever revisit that. But no wars. Trump, you know, I, I, some, I don't know whether that was, you know, despite Trump's best efforts or his just sheer incompetence, but there were no Iraq under Trump's watch for all that his administration was a catastrophe and a disaster in so many ways. At least you can't say he started any really stupid wars. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it would be, I think that it would be a terrible thing for U.S. politics and for U.S. civil society and for U.S. domestic politics for Trump to be reelected. There's no question. I don't know about foreign policy. It'd probably be bad. Sometimes I wonder mm -hmm. whether there's something to Stephen Walt's argument about the blob and how really when it comes to foreign policy, no matter which parties, you know, the differences end up being rather tactical. Well, that's the nature of the conversation. You start off with a discussion of the U.S.-Singapore relationship, and somehow you end up discussing U.S.-China ties, the geopolitical value of small states, and what might happen with a second Trump administration. The bottom line is, the U.S.-Singapore relationship is cooperative, dynamic, open-eyed, and will likely remain so going into 2024. I certainly found the discussion to be very interesting, and I hope you did too. And with that, I would like to thank our speakers for sharing their insights with us. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. We hope to host you again for exciting discussions about US foreign policy in the region. Until next time, stay safe and goodbye.